Chapter 24 of On. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stacy Dugan Wilcox. On by Hilaire Belloc. Ultima Ratio. I came out of the sea the other day into a little English harbor and landed there. After I had put away everything on board and left my boat in charge of the old man who looks after her in the tidal lock, I stood waiting outside the railway station till my train should come and take me home, and there it was that I saw a German gun. They had put it up for a trophy. Never was a war with trophies so promiscuous. Never was a war with trophies so much of an anticlimax. The nearest thing to a real trophy which they have had since this war ended was the great pyramid of guns in the middle of the Champs-Élysées, all heaped together pell-mell with the cock crowing on the top of them. But I never see a Bavarian or a Prussian gun stuck up mournfully in a little English town without thinking of the English and French guns which are knocking about somewhere among the German states. And what is more, I never see one without thinking how poor a trophy the modern gun makes, especially the German gun, the carriage of which always reminds me of rather heavy and bad agricultural machinery. I think of the trophies of old, of the fine bronze guns taken in the wars against the French, and of the flags in the churches, and especially that amazing ragged, dusty double line of them in the Envalide in Paris, which looks down slantwise through a yellow window and sees, in its solemn gulf below, the huge marble sarcophagus of Napoleon. However, there was the gun, and as the time of waiting for a train is the most empty time in the world, because you cannot limit it, and you do not know whether it is long enough to start a geometrical problem or some other entertaining pastime, I filled it up by walking around that gun. I guessed it to be a 150, say 6-inch, but I judged these things badly. At any rate, it was a heavy piece, not a howitzer. I know not what it is. It may be youth and its permanent memories— but when I see a gun firing at the moon, cocked up at its utmost elevation, I feel that the weapon has suffered an indignity. It is as though it were an animal going through a performance, for the natural position of a gun is some slight elevation for a normal range, and not this isolated, head-in-the-air barking attitude which the guns of captivity too often wear. They are noblest, these poor prisoners, when they stand level with the earth, as though they were firing at close range in the hopeless effort to stop an advancing wave. Well, anyhow, there it was, all lifted up, absurdly, like a dog baying. Then, when I got nearer to the gun and looked closely at it, I saw something which I have seen so often in a million German things that it has become a commonplace for them in my mind, but I know it is perilous to whisper it on this side of the channel. The thing that has become a commonplace in my mind is the fact that Germans cannot make, but can only copy. They have many negative virtues, very unsuited to their vast aberrations. They are fairly industrious, very simple, normally kind and domestic, and in their dreamy way they half catch now and then what the older civilization of Europe expresses in strong and positive beauty. But they copy. They are impressed. They are a soft metal, and ancient Europe is the dye. What made me think of this commonplace was seeing, on that gun, actually engraved upon a modern gun, a poor little copy of Louis XIV. Think of it. After now much more than two hundred years, 
There it was before my astonished eyes, and I could hardly believe it. The motto of the great king copied upon a Hohenzollern gun. It was like reading the Oniswaki Malipon of the Plantagenets on the menu of a cosmopolitan hotel. For Louis XIV in his proudest moment had engraved upon his cannon, just above the middle point where cannons turn upon their trunnions, a great L written in a flourishing script with a crown above it, and then along the breach, just above the touch hole, he had engraved upon a sort of scroll the phrase Ultima Ratio Regium. It was a famous phrase in Europe then. The greatest of English writers made good fun of it when he said, It seems that his arguments have been turned against himself. That was Louis XIV's manner, and, I say, I thought everybody had forgotten it. I thought that no one remembered that motto except a few miserable people like myself who potter about doing useless things, but I was wrong. The last king of Prussia, the last of the Hohenzollerns, the man upon whom the famous oracle of the 13th century has fallen, he remembered it. William II, last and most grotesque German emperor, was responsible for this silly thing. For there on that gun, in the wretched little, absurd little, squalid little station square of a little port, with no one to pay it the honor even of curiosity, I remarked graven things slavishly copied from Louis the Fourteenth. First, just above the trunnion, there was a crown, and under it, in exactly the same flourishing script of the seventeenth century, the two letters, W.R., interlaced, and between them an eagle looking fiercely to its right— so I take it that this gun was worked for the king of Prussia. Then, at the breach, there was a scroll, and in the scroll was a similar script, just like that of Louis the Fourteenth, and the motto ran, Ultima Ratio Regis. Regis, mind you, not regium. We all have the defects of our qualities, and there does go with the German, even with the Prussian, simplicity, an astonishing lack of critical power. Ultima ratio regium is one thing. Ultima ratio regis is quite another. It reminded me of the famous quotation, Frailty, thy name is lady. Now why was that script ever graven? The date was 1909. Against whom was this ephemeral Prussian king going to use his argument, his last argument? I carry back my mind to 1909, and I can remember no one against whom, at that moment, he was preparing to argue in such a fashion. It was a quiet time. There was no worry within the Prussian state. Agadir had not been heard of. Yet that was the date, and that was the motto. And there was the eagle, and there was the inscribed flourishing initial, and there was the crown. I know very well that some, perhaps most of my readers, of those who do me the honor to read this rambling, will think me a fool for what I am next to say. But I confess a sentimentality towards that gun. When I was a boy, and they were teaching me to drive in the artillery school at Toul, they used to give us a sort of vile body on which to experiment our horses and ourselves, old guns of forty-eight, old bronze guns, and these the French had made with great art. They were beautiful things, what touched me most about them was that each of them had a name. One was called Liberty, another the Voice of the People, another Equality, and so on. It is a human instinct and a just one to give names to things. It is part of the truth that we ourselves are made in the image of God. Why, even my boat, which is but a material inanimate body, may she forgive me, has a name. I must tell you, though you ridicule me, 
that when I saw that German gun, I wished it also had a name. And what sort of name should it have had? It could not have had a name for an abstract virtue or idea, like a French gun. It might have had the name of a great German man, but the names of such men are soon exhausted. It might have had the name of a jest, for jests are innumerable, but then the reader would have had to understand the jest, which would probably have been local, like Grandmama or Archie, or the huge French gun I knew in my youth, which the men of my youth called Silence in the Ranks, an enormous piece on the top of a fort. Indeed, I cannot conceive what name could have been given to this one gun out of so many guns. Still, I wish it had had a name. If it had had a name, I could look back on it, now that I have left it, and say to myself, what fun I had in those few minutes before the train came in, examining the outward expression of his character, his toilet, his elevation, and all the rest of it. But the gun had no name, and so I must still carry it in my mind anonymously as the German gun. Of all the hundreds of guns that I have seen lying about, or being carried on trucks, or drawn by horses, or standing in the great factories during these years, only one gun has touched me more, and this was also a German gun. I saw it in February 1915. It lay derelict in a ditch close to the road near the river Ourcq, within an hour of Mou, and Paris not forty miles away. It was perhaps the extreme gun of all the invasion, the mark of the high tide. It lay pitifully on one side, like the corpse in Baudelaire's poem. One wheel it had not at all, but only the axle sticking up into the air, and the other wheel was rooted into the ground, and there lay the poor dead German gun like a fool. I said to my companion, Why does not some one of the peasants take it away and keep it for a relic? To which my companion answered, in the hard French fashion, which differs so much from the more human English way, Why should he? End of chapter 24